And so we stand out of reverence to our Lord. Let us hear God's word. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, James, John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? <laughs> no, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. The then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the, full, the net full of fish, for there were, they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of God. You may be seated. While you're taking a seat, would you tell the person next to you, man, you sing so well, you ought to be in a choir. I can see some of you laughing because someone told you you ought to be in a choir, but you really did sound good this morning. Thank you for tuning up those old hymns that remind us of the deep theology of our faith. You know, so far in our worship service, we, we've, uh, we really have reflected on the fact that the world as it is is not going to stay the way it is, that there's coming a day when the world will end and judgment will come upon the face of the earth. And it's in that day that God will judge the world for all the evil that is in it. He'll judge us for the evil we have done. And the glorious news of the gospel is that realizing this tremendous truth that God is God and he cannot allow sin to be unpunished, that he so loved you and me that he sent his son to bear our sins upon the tree so that we would not have to face that day of judgment with a frown or worry 
but with great confidence, not in ourselves or our goodness, but in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. It's kind of amazing to me because John has been writing this gospel and we've been studying it these past weeks because, well, I should say these past months. Uh, Maybe I should say these past years. But we have been studying it for this one reason, and is that John writes this gospel so that you, so that you may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a subjective verb. There's no guarantee that you will. In fact, you could be here this morning and you, are, you have gotten your life cleaned up on the outside and everyone else thinks that you're a wonderful person, but you know on the inside that there are things that are wicked and dark. That if you stood before God, you would blush because you know that you have not lived up even to your own expectations, much less a God who created the heavens and the earth. So when we begin to study this particular passage, we have studied so far the last two Sundays, two other times after the resurrection where Jesus was with the disciples and appearing to them. There was actually four times when he appeared, if you include the time with Mary in the garden right after the resurrection, but only three times with the disciples as it recorded. And I find it very curious that John records for us in the end of chapter 20 those powerful words that that he acknowledges that if, if a book was to be written that would contain all the miracles and teachings that Jesus gave, no, no book in the world could contain the beauty and the volume of truth that Christ revealed about God. Think of that. Uh, I love libraries, and I go into libraries often and think about the volumes. Have you all ever been in our nation's library, the Library of Congress? It is breathtaking. That place, as breathtaking as it is, could not contain the full knowledge of what Jesus revealed concerning God. That's what John is saying. And this morning we come to this third passage, which is really quite amazing because it seems innocuous. There doesn't seem to be a lot of scintillating news that you get from what we hear and read in this particular passage, this third appearance. But it's a really a, a, a fish story. And, and I know some of you, I know your fish stories, and they're pretty, pretty exaggerated, right? Well, John's not exaggerating on this one, so we're, we're going to really trust that what we're reading is the gospel, that it is the gospel truth. Most amazing, it's a story about you. You say, I'm not in there. I, I didn't see my name. No, but it is a story about you. And that's why John has written it. There was a story I heard a long time ago of a man who, uh, who made his living by doing uh, acrobatic acts and acts of feats of, of a marvel or amazement. And uh, in the and I don't remember the year of this. I wish I tried to look up the story, but I, I distinctly remember that it was maybe uh, the time that one of the tallest skyscrapers in the New York City skyline had been built, and he had advertised that he was going to run a tightrope from one building to another and then walk across the tightrope right over the middle of the busiest street in New York. And so as he was doing this, he was making sure that everyone in the city knew about it so they would gather and it, it was really a promotional for his his show that would be uh, featured in the next week or so uh, kind of akin to what they used to do with the circus came to town they would have a parade that would let everybody know the circus had arrived well that's what he was doing 
So he had someone put a cable from one building to another, and he stood one day on that fateful morning when he announced that he was going to walk across this tightrope, and he looked down to the crowd and he said, Do you believe I can walk across this tightrope? And the crowd was like, Yes, yes. A couple of voices, Yes, we believe it, we believe it. And so he got out on the tightrope and he walked all the way across the tightrope. And he got to the other side and everybody was like, oh, that's great, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. And then he said, do you believe that I can take this chair and walk halfway across the tightrope and set it down and sit in the chair? And everybody was like, yes, oh, yes. And you weren't sure if they were excited because they wanted to see him actually fall or succeed. But, but yes, we believe you can do it. And so he took the chair and he walked out across the tightrope and he put the chair in the middle. And to the amazement of everyone, he literally stepped over the chair, sat down on it, and balanced himself perfectly on the tightrope. People went crazy, clapping, cheering, absolutely enthralled with this tremendous talent this man had. Well, after he got back to the other side with the chair, he pulled out a wheelbarrow and he said, ladies and gentlemen, do you believe I can take this wheelbarrow across this, this, uh, this, what was it called? Tight row. Thank you. Senior moment. <laughs> and they all screamed, yes. And he looked down and he pointed his finger at the man and said, you get in the wheelbarrow. Would you have gotten in the wheelbarrow? This is what John has done in writing this gospel. Because where we come to in chapter 21 is argued among scholars who spent a lifetime studying this gospel as to whether the 21st chapter was an addition that was written by the hands of a different person or whether John included it in his gospel. Nowhere can we find any evidence that it was not written by John. The language and the text and the, and the syntax all matches the rest of the gospel. So that doesn't betray someone else adding something John didn't write. And, and another point is that as you look at it, the, what is called an epilogue is really a, a, an, a, an, a statement, a summary of really what the purpose of John's gospel really was. And you know what the purpose was? He says, I write these things in chapter 20. I write these things so that you may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, that's what this story is all about. Let me show you. He says, first of all, if you notice that they were fishing. In, in chapter, chapter, um, Chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, you hear these words. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, or also called the Sea of Tiberias, other places in the Bible, uh, it happened this way. In other words, this is, this is the gospel truth. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, the doubter, the one who was in the last story we just read, who said, I won't believe until I see and touch his hands. And then Jesus appears to him. And what does he say? My Lord and my God. And he worships Jesus. Nathaniel, who we haven't heard from, almost in all the gospel, going back to the very first chapters, he is from Canaan, not far from Galilee, where they are. 
And the sons of Zebedee, James and John, these two men who have a hard time controlling their temper. They're called sons of thunder. Some scholars think they were part of what was called the Zealot Party, which just wanted to have a revolution and kick the Romans out and overcome might with might. Ear for an ear, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And then it lists two other disciples that doesn't give us their names. Well, wait a minute. That, there were 11 disciples left. That only makes seven. Why seven? Well, some scholars, some people who've commented on this, said there's a, it's, a, it's a number that we're supposed to pay attention to because of the holiness of that number seven. It's not divisible. There are a lot of explanations that you can find in studying the scriptures and looking at what people say. I think simply because these seven men were told by Jesus to go back to Galilee and wait until he would tell them the next things to do. And they were being obedient to him in doing so. The only thing they had to do was fish. And they were, by the way, fishermen. Peter, James, and John grew up in a family of fishermen. And in those days, the boats they used were, were about 46 feet long. And, and they, were, they weren't rowboats. They weren't John boats. I used to, as a kid, think they were John boats. You know, I don't know why. Just these small boats. When, when we were in Israel, we actually got on one of the boats that was a, uh, a, well supposed to be a, a facsimile of what was there. And it really was amazing how large that boat was. It made me appreciate even more when Jesus tells them to drop the net on the right side and pull the fish in the first time in the gospel that the nets almost broke and that they could barely get the fish up because the net was so full that the ship almost capsized. That's a lot of fish. Interestingly enough, when you look at this passage, you begin to realize that these men are waiting for something that they don't know is going to happen. All they know is that the man they loved and followed for three years, who told them before it happened that he was going to suffer on the cross, die, and be resurrected, did. They have witnessed his appearance twice, and they're anticipating something that's going to happen that will be absolutely earth-shattering and nothing nothing has happened since those few hours days beforehand so Peter says I think I'm going fishing I don't know how you read that whether it's out of boredom or just needing to fill his hands with something to do. Some of you men are like that. You, you would rather work on some, some mechanical problem than talk to anybody. In fact, I know some of you, you have a shop where you go into your shop and you isolate yourself from everybody so you can't be bothered while you're thinking. Well, interestingly enough, these men decide they're going fishing for the very reason that they are trying to make sense of what their life is going to be like now that the resurrected Christ has appeared to them and he has told them, as Logan led us through the scriptures, peace be with you. In other words, I have come to give you fullness of life. I've come to give you what you have been aching for. And I, and I really have thought about that. I thought about that teaching and thought about as I've watched the news, our world as troubled as it is. Uh, people, young people, completely confused about gender now. 
And why has this happened? Because of the internet and the overwhelming influence the internet has had in ca- changing the morals of our culture so that, that women are now afraid to even go to work because they may be approached by a man in an inappropriate way. Or, as I read the other day, uh, a man, a stewardess, was approached by another man on an airline and kissed because he was attracted to him. And now the man is being locked up and thrown in jail for being sexually aggressive to another man. And you look at what's happening in our world and you think to yourself, is this the way God intended it? Is this what God intended for us? That we would be these kinds of people that pursue whatever passion comes in our hearts. And the answer is no, that's not how God created us originally. That's what the Bible teaches. But what's happening in our culture right now is a revolution, a warfare. And it's a warfare over who is our God. What is it that we worship? What is it that draws us and gives us life? What makes me happy? Well, all of those questions are being asked by people. And let me tell you, the amazing thing is everything we have done as a culture in the last hundred years to make ourselves happy has made us more miserable. Have you noticed that? And the most amazing thing is that as the disciples decide to do something, what do they do? They go out and fish. It's something they know, they, know they, they know how to do. But if you look in verse 4, the success of that is really quite amazing because they are not successful. It says early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. Verse 5, he, he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And they answered no. How do you think they answered no? Do you think they said, nah, or no, what do you want, or no? How would you answer if you worked laboriously all night to catch fish, which was a prime time for fishing? It wasn't like they were just filling days. It's at that point you begin to realize that whatever they were doing was fruitless. Fruitless. And I think that is the curse of what we're seeing in humanity is the effort to do things without someone to help us. Uh, It's amazing. We're finding that there's been an increase of suicides. Why? Because people are hopeless. They have no hope. We're seeing marriages that are all-time high divorcing. In fact, we're seeing people not marrying. Why? Because there's no hope that marriage will solve our problems. Why is this happening? What's going on? Well, it, it's really happening, my friends, because, because we are left to our own devices, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own way of making life, this way we have been making life is destroying us. And it's destroying us because we are basically doing what was done in the days of judges in the Old Testament, and that is our mantra is we do whatever's right in our own eyes. We do whatever's right in our own eyes. Who are you to tell me? And that kind of thing goes all the way back to the fall in the Garden of Eden where the tempter came and tempted Adam and Eve to say the same thing to God. Who is God to tell me what I can eat? 
that failure that they had was pretty quite powerful. First they were fishing, then they were failing, and this isn't advancing. <laughs> Maybe there, oh, there it is, John, okay. Thirdly, there was a favor, and this is where God is so merciful to, the, is, to these disciples. You find it in verse, verse 6, and in that, pa- in that particular verse, it's really quite powerful because of the simplicity of it, the simplicity. Jesus said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. What was so great about that? Well, they'd been fishing all night. But it wasn't until they listened to the Lord and followed him that somehow, miraculously, they began to sing, this is my father's world. This is my father's world. You don't think these experienced fishermen knew how to fish? Sure they did. They were just fishing in their own wisdom. When all that was done and the the net was full and the seven disciples were struggling to figure out what to do next, the disciple whom Jesus loved, by the way, we think that's the gospel John writer, the gospel of John the writer, John the son of Zebedee, he says, it's the Lord. It's almost like they didn't expect him to show up. It's the Lord. And Peter, God bless Peter. Remember him. The one who told Jesus, Jesus, I will die for you. He even tried to take an ear of a, a servant off to show how serious he was. And Jesus was rebuked. Jesus rebuked him for doing so. And then... Even before any of this happened, Jesus said, Peter, before the crock, the, the chicken crows, the, the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And it, it happened. The other Gospels record that as Jesus was being led into his trial, the cock crowed and Jesus' eyes and Peter's eyes met across the courtyard when Jesus had denied him the third time. And the Bible says he left a broken man. Broken. I, I can't wait to hear the sermon next week when Jesus confronts Peter about that. But, uh, but until then, understand that Peter, Peter in his rashness says, when he hears John say it's the Lord, he he puts back on his outer garment, wrapping it, we think, around his waist. He jumps in the water and he swims about 100 yards to get to Jesus. I just love that, don't you? I mean, after all he's done, you would think he'd be the last one to jump out of the boat, right? But he realized something about Christ that John, as he writes this gospel, wants you to see about Jesus. That regardless of what you've done, how you've lived, the choices you've made, Christ is available to you this morning. 
And he wants you to come to him. Desperately. Because maybe you've been trying to fish in the wrong places. And looking for life when there is none. It's at that moment the fellowship begins. The, the men, as they're left to struggle, six of them are struggling with this net, bringing it in, and Peter and Jesus are setting up camp on the shore. It records, John records for us in, in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved said, It's the Lord, and as soon as Peter heard it, he wrapped himself and he, he jumped in. It says the outer, he took, put on his outer garment and jumped into the water. Then verse 8, it says, The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And then Jesus said to them, Bring some of your fish you've caught. And Simon Peter reluctantly probably climbed back aboard and helped them pull the rest in. Some people are surprised, but John records there are 153 fish. And I want you to know as you go back and read the commentaries going back to the early church fathers. Ambrose, early church father of the second century, said the 153 fish represent the 153 nations of the world that the gospel is going to reach to. And, and the only problem was there were 157 during times of Ambrose. So that didn't work out. Uh, there have been so many conjectures about what this 153 means. Well, let me just tell you what it means. There were a lot of fish. <laughs> a lot. So much so that the disciples realized that this was not something that happens every day. This is something that miraculously happened because Christ had been a part of it. And the most amazing thing is as they sat there and began to have fellowship with, the, with, with Christ, uh, it was the most amazing meal they had ever had because here we understand, along with the other Gospels, something about this resurrected body that Jesus has now how now displayed and manifest for his disciples. He eats with them. He's not a ghost. He's a real person who's been raised from the dead. Now let that grip your mind just a minute. My sister passed away in 2012 from liver cancer. I remember the Remember the conversation I had with her on the phone when she had searched out doctors all over the United States to, to help her. And they had exhausted every particular doctor they could find. They had gone in and done surgery to remove lumps out of her liver thinking if they could do it quick enough and then put her on chemo that they would arrest the growth and her life would be spared. Nothing was going to save her. And she finally broke the news to me and said, it's over. And I said, I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got an organ you can have. I, I, I'm O positive. I know you, you could have it. She said, it wouldn't help. And when we buried her, there was no coming back. Imagine what it would have been like if I had driven down to Savannah a week later and she was sitting in the chair laughing, eating fish, hopefully with hush puppies. The greatest fear you and I have is what happens to us after our death. 
all of us are going to face death. Everyone. We know from our, our confession this morning that this is not the end of our life, that there's coming a day beyond that, that there's a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And after that, the day of judgment. The most amazing thing is that Jesus in the first appearance, the second appearance, said, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Now, how is that possible? Because he overcame death. And he still lives today. One of the mistakes in the Christian church is we talk about the resurrection so much, we forget that the resurrection is tied to the ascension. That this resurrected Jesus has now ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. This Lord is not a dead Lord. He's not a Lord who is living somewhere in the Bahamas in secret. He is a risen Savior who now is in the right hand of God the Father. And it's at that moment that we begin to see the miracle of this, of this manifestation of Jesus because there, as John records these words for us, if you look at it and you look very carefully, in verse 12, Jesus said, Come and have breakfast, none of the disciples None of the disciples, and, and I'm sorry I haven't kept up with myself, but here it is, genuine faith. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Why? Because they knew who he was. He was the one that had been promised of the Old Testament, the Messiah who would come and bear the sins of the world. He was the one who the, the, the promise of one who would deliver the kingdom of God to the people who would believe in him would come. He, he was the one that the Old Testament pointed to as God's solution to this world that is out of kilter and off its axis. And he is the answer to the problem of every human heart where we would like to be better than we truly are, but we can never be better than we are because of the power of sin within us. He's the one who can save us. You go on and read in verse 12. It says they knew it was the Lord. And then Jesus came and took bread and he gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Now this was now the third time that Jesus disappeared to his disciples. What's the point of this? Well, it's really quite amazing. They were displaying for the first time genuine faith in Christ. Not in Jesus, the man, but in Christ, the Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, he is the Messiah. He is the promised one, the Christ. And yet because of that, John tells us in John chapter 1, verses, verses, uh, verses 12, he says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. What does that mean? I asked you that in the beginning of the sermon. Well, interestingly enough, when you look at this, it's really quite amazing. John uh, D.A. Carson, a, a wonderful scholar who's written a, a, 
uh, uh, commentary called The Gospel According to John, he, s he points out this truth about that phrase. He says, when it says the name, a name is more than a label. It is a character of a person or even the person himself. And so when John writes and says, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, it's not that I believe that Jesus was a historical figure or that he lived and died and was raised. It's that I have come to understand who Jesus is. What he is is the Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. But more than that, he is God. And that God who will judge the righteous and the wicked is the one who died for me paid the penalty of my sin for me so that I may be saved. From what? The judgment I deserve. And so this genuine faith really has three components. And, and here is where Jesus this morning is asking you, you're going to get in the wheelbarrow? Are you going to get in the wheelbarrow now? That's why John's written this gospel. We, we've had a wonderful time reading the stories and the miracles and all of that, but now comes the time of decision. Are you ready to make a decision? Because you will right now, whether you think about it or not. Well, what's the decision? It's, it's this. If, if you want to believe in Christ... The most amazing thing is, Jesus says, I am ready to receive you. And if you don't, I'm ready to let you go. <clears throat> there are three things about genuine faith that really challenge me as I think about my faith in Christ this morning. This has nothing to do with you. By the way, tell your neighbor, Robert's preaching to himself at this point. Would you do that? Just so no one feels guilty, just say he's talking about himself, okay? When I look at this, and I look at what genuine faith is, is, is given evidence in this story, it is really powerful because genuine faith, first of all, yields an allegiance to the word that God has spoken. Genuine faith yields an allegiance to the word that God has spoken. There was an attempt a couple of uh, decades ago to try to recapture this thought about genuine faith where there was a wristband that was being sold. And, and I always hate that when things are being sold for Jesus' name, don't you? But when a wristband was sold and it had some, some letters on it, WWJD, oh, you've got one. <laughs> uh, what would Jesus do? Well, well the, the campaign behind that was for Christians to act in a way that was in accordance with what they believed concerning Christ. It was a noble and laudable goal, but the problem was it became a, a, a caricature of, of uh, easy money, of, of the way of the church or somebody making money off of Christianity. That's the sad part about anything like that. But, but that attempt was, was noble in this one sense that when you and I come to faith in Jesus, when we hear this gospel and we come to that place of decision and we come to receive Christ and what he has done for us in the cross, we confess to him our sins. We say, God, I'm not the person I'm supposed to be. Please forgive me. 
come into my life, I am not asking Jesus to get in my car and sit in the passenger seat while I'm driving. That's not what I'm doing. I am asking Jesus to get in the driver's seat of my car, and I am going to get in the back seat. Because from that point on, when I am giving myself to Christ and believing in his name, I am trusting in him, period. And so from that point on, his words become extremely important for how I mold my life, how I love my spouse, how I treat my neighbor, how I live out my life in this world. That's what separates the Christian who has genuine faith from the one that doesn't. Their whole method, modus operandi, changes to reflect who their Lord and Savior is, Jesus. They are having allegiance to his word. The second part of this genuine faith is quite amazing as well. It's trust him completely. And this is where, as Christians, there is a great battle going on. It's a battle in my heart. Maybe it's in yours. But I tend to want to think that God judges me by how good I am. By how much good, I, I mean, let's face it, you gave a lot of money in the, in the collection plate this morning, God must really love you, right? You, you've been at church, you, 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 you've, you've come here to hear a sermon, God must really love you more than other people, right? No, no. God's love is displayed in Christ and it is a love that encompasses everyone, it is not partial. I remember growing up in my family, I was the youngest of three, one of the big arguments in our family and, and I'm really grateful I only have one child because this was tough. One of the arguments in our family was, Mom, Dad, who do you love more? In fact, when my sister was dying, I thought my dad loved her more than, I, more than he loved me. And as we were talking, I found out that she felt the same way, that my dad loved me more than he loved her. No, no, no. God's love for all of us is the same. There is no distinction. Black, white, female, male. And the most amazing thing is that when you understand who God is and what he's done for you, then the second dynamic of genuine faith is a complete trust in God. Even when people tell you you're being a bigot. Or you're being very narrow-minded. And then the third amazing thing about this faith that the disciples had was that it was a faith that acknowledged that Jesus' claims about himself are exactly true. And they want to confess him before others with tremendous gratitude. Are you, are you ashamed of Jesus? In the culture wars we're, we're engaging these days, that's the goal of your enemy. They want you ashamed of Jesus. They want you ashamed of him, so ashamed you do not talk about the gospel or their need of forgiveness or your need of forgiveness. They do not want the name of Jesus proclaimed. Why? Because they do not want to bow the knee to God. Just like you didn't before you came to know Christ. 
well, what are we to do about it? Should we raise up a political party? Should we raise a lot of money and start having campaigns? Should we, should we go out and tell people how stupid they are because they don't believe in Jesus? I remember talking with a woman in this church years ago who had a husband that was unbelieving, and we were talking about how to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And she said, well, I do it every morning. And I said, really? I said, well, what do you do? She says, I wake up and I look at him and I say, you're going to hell. And I thought, well, I wonder how that works for her. You know? You know, we're supposed to be the most winsome believers, not because we have to prove that we're right. We are believing the truth. All we need to do is proclaim that truth. By the way, if you're wondering how to turn everyday conversations into gospel conversations, I'll be leading a class on Sunday morning in June on how to do that. There's a little book that's just come out that really helps. Let me ask you, are you afraid? Are you afraid to share with others what you believe? I am. <laughs> and I'm your pastor. I'm afraid I might say it wrong. I'm afraid I might mess it up. But you know something? I really do believe that Christ is the only hope of this world. I really do believe that God raised him from the dead. I really do believe that he is the Lord who's been given all authority and power in heaven and earth. And I really do believe there's coming a day when he will judge the world. I really do. Now you can leave here this morning and you might be right. You might be thinking, he's crazy. Yeah, crazy like a fox. Because he is Lord. And the fact that there have been countless people who have come and tried to disprove Christianity and have come to faith in Christ is because they genuinely ask the right questions. So let me ask you this morning. Are you here just to be feeling better that you were in church? Are you really here just to hear a good sermon so you go back and say, man, that was a great sermon. Ah, so good. Or are you here to encounter the living Christ? Because I can promise you that's the real challenge of being a Christian is going back and looking at the words of Jesus and his teaching and daring to follow him. It's in that vein that we'll find that Jesus is preparing these disciples to go and be fishers of men. Here they are with a full net of fish. They're probably thinking, we can go sell these at the market. You know, we'll get some money. We'll buy a house. We'll have some kids. Will settle down. No, Jesus' plan is that they will be fishers of men and women. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this tremendous story that gives us hope that there really is a Lord and Savior who is raised and lives eternally with God the Father. That in our confusion, he brings 
clarity. That in our heartache, he brings healing. That in, in our brokenness, he brings restoration. And for anyone who seeks him, the proof is not in this building or on this campus. The proof is in Jesus' work in the lives of people who dare to believe in him. Because to those who, those who believe in him, to those who call upon his name, you give them the right to be called the children of God. There may be someone in the sound of my voice who is so close to the kingdom. They're, they want to receive Christ, but they have questions. God, make them restless until they find their rest in you, the answer to the questions they have. There may be others who need Christ this morning, and they know it. We thank you, God, that your arms are open and wide and able to receive them right now if they will pray and reach out to you by faith and be willing to turn and follow you. We thank you, God, for your mercy. We thank you that you do not receive us because of something we do. You receive all who come to you because of what you did through your cross. We bless you, Jesus. We bless your name. And the people of God said together,